listening to The Drop and the Turning, a podcast about music, place, and change. My name is Rebecca Bruton, and we're broadcasting from Mokinstis, where the Bow and Elbow Rivers converge. Today I'm speaking with the great Kathleen Yearwood, who is a visionary elder musician living in the bush in northern Alberta. In her bio, Kathleen writes, I spent my deformative years in a land with an active genocide. I lit out to get back to Europe, but poverty pulled me back. I look hopeful on that passport photo. Nobody wanted me to go into the arts. My working class background told me not to, but I did. Everything else was like leaving a helpless child unattended. I tend to it now. The segments of music you'll be hearing throughout this show are excerpts from Kathleen's 2020 release, Requiem. Any curse words you hear have been left unbleeped. So you said that you got a blizzard. Is it colder where you are than it would be in Edmonton? Yeah, it is by about, sometimes by as much as 10 degrees colder because there's a bubble over cities, you know, that keeps them warm, right? So we're outside the bubble, well outside. I live in the bush. Mm -hmm. But there's a horse and there's a dog. There's several species of bird and flying squirrels. I can enumerate many species that I share the bush with right now. I found a place here that I could actually buy some land for an an insanely low price, and so I did. Um, And I couldn't afford to live anywhere else, so that's why I'm here. It's just purely economic, I guess. This is my first real home, you know? One of the things that I notice about your work and that I admire about you is that you've been very outspoken 
always about colonization in Canada. And you've used the term genocide for a long time. And I don't think there have been many white settlers. I don't know if you call yourself a settler, do you? Mm -hmm. Who have been that comfortable naming those things for as long as you have. So I sort of have two questions wrapped up. And one is, why do you think you noticed those things and have had an awareness of them? And then I'm also curious, tying into that, what your feelings are being on the land and owning land with your cognizance of this being a country built on colonization and eradication? Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, how can you not notice? <laughs> that I don't understand. Um, I think that Canadians, um, through their education system and just through their families, they're taught a willful kind of ignorance where they're taught they see things but then they're taught that those things don't mean what they mean you know they're given all kinds of codes for what things mean and they're not true and then the you know the actual fact of genocide never comes up but for me it was very obvious from childhood what was going on uh and uh, for me, owning land right now is just a necessity. I squatted for 11 years, and it was basically, it turns out that's basically homelessness, because when you go out, you don't know if you've got anywhere to come back to, actually. You never know, and that happened a few times, where I was kicked off or had to leave because it was just too untenable and um, this land is really interesting because it came up it came up for sale when I didn't have any money at all for a very low price and it was so funny we came out and looked at it and it was just burned over scrub like trees five feet tall and it had been recently burnt it came up for sale and then we laughed because we couldn't afford it uh, and then years later, um, I got a Canada Council grant, and the land was still for sale. No one seemed to want it, because it was really ugly <laughs> and kind of swamped and burnt over and on a, like, no services, no no power, gas, or anything like that. So I just immediately bought it and then began the process of moving on to it. And I use about three acres uh, to live on, like with a horse and a garden and a little cabin. And then the rest is just the bush, and in the bush lives all the animals that already did live here. And we're just neighbors. But, I mean, personally, I don't have any issue with what they call owning land because I wasn't given it by the government. And I didn't have to kill anyone to keep it. And uh, frankly, if if someone indigenous asked me for it from out here, I mean, they can have it. 
and I think pretty much my neighbors know that <laughs> is the situation. So. curious if you can talk about ways that being in this pandemic has or has not affected the ways that you create music in your life, create and disseminate music. It hasn't changed my life at all, really, um, because I live a pretty isolated life, and you'd be surprised what being two hours out of a major center it does to people in terms of them visiting you. <laughs> they don't. So the onus always seems to be on me to keep connections with people, and um, maybe I can just use a pandemic as an excuse to not do that anymore. Um, so for for writing and making music and making loud noise in the forest it hasn't had an effect and it's um, I don't notice any difference but dissemination because for me uh, live performance is part of my practice um, it's really important for me to it, for me live performance from a musician is a, is a ritual sacrifice and I haven't, I mean, I don't often get asked to make that sacrifice, but um, kind of not being able to do it at all is, is difficult. And I find that what, I, what I'm doing does not translate to a screen or video or any of that. And there, it just doesn't translate. I've heard a lot of performers describe the performance as a ritual but I've never heard anybody describe it as a ritual sacrifice so I'm wondering why the sacrifice and how is it a ritual well it's obviously a ritual the way that it's set up but the sacrifice is the musician and especially in my case a female singer is a, is a perfect blood sacrifice. <laughs> and they want to, they come, the, the audience comes to see you suffer. And they come to see you, um, well, to see you die because everything you've made there, you're, you're giving them. And uh, you're, you're left with nothing. And that's what they want to see and that's what makes it good. Thank you. 
when I go through your discography, what I notice is there's always a noise element and always a non-song based element. But the last couple of releases that you've put out, the This Guitar is Wrecked, or the last couple of new releases, so This Guitar is Wrecked 1 and 2, and then the Requiem Dies Irae, they're less song-based. And I'm wondering if that is a, what level of intentionality is there? Um, Was that a very specific choice that you're going to work more in sound-based mediums or non text-based or like the Requiem, it's Latin? Um, Or was it more what you're drawn to at different times? I'm curious that uh, what propelled that shift over the last few years into these more instrumental formats? Um, Well, thank you for asking. Uh, For me, it's not a shift. They're all songs, Just, just longer songs. Um, I think too. I think part of like playing the guitar, learning to play the guitar. I really set myself a. I really wanted to learn to play the electric guitar, and I think at a certain point, for me, it was like with writing. Um, I struggled and struggled, and then one day I just suddenly could play the fucking electric guitar. <laughs> so that informed my decision to do longer sound-based things because, you know, it was less lyric, less uh, less song structure. But uh, right now, what I recorded for you, what we recorded for you when we were practicing was uh, the second-to-last movement of the Requiem, as it is now. Um, it's something about uh, Lazarus. Uh and it's basically, I'm playing, I'm bowing the guitar, and it's very loud, it's very raucous, and there's a lot of screaming, and and then it ends rather sweetly. And then at the same time, I wrote a song during this same period that, uh, and we'll send you some of that too. Um, it's a song about uh, hanging out with your dog and thinking about stuff. <laughs> It's very much a song. It's almost embarrassingly a song. A dog song. Dog, horse, garden song. It's about doing stuff and realizing that you're not always going to be doing stuff because you just won't always be here. Which is sort of like the Requiem, but it's it's more of a song, a song uh, version of that.
Hello, listeners. My name is Rebecca Bruton, and you're listening to The Drop and The Turning on CGSW Community Radio. I'm here over the phone with Kathleen Yearwood, and we took a quick break from her requiem just there in order to listen to Old Dog Snore, which is a work in progress. I'll be returning to the requiem after the next interview segment. So a requiem is a very traditional, I want to say classical music form, but I think my my own relationship to classical music is that it is a folk music that then got placed on a hierarchy within the Eurocentric tradition. Mm -hmm. And where most of classical music comes from is really early sacred music and choral music. And the Requiem is one of these early sacred forms. And I'm curious, given that your work in terms of aesthetic, I would say it relates more to the kind of paganism that shows up. There's a there's a kind of pagan element, ritual sacrifices, and there's a lot of metal influences. Mm-hmm. And then the Requiem Dies Irae, even though you're working with noise and with very loud electronic guitars and extended vocal techniques and extended ne- techniques everywhere in it, you've really kind of stuck to this traditional form and you're working with a very traditional mode And that form is so clear in it. I'm wondering what that meant to you to be using those kinds of older forms coming from a specific tradition of sacred music, as well as notated music. (laughs) Very Western. Um, I mean, the Requiem, I think, comes straight out of Catholicism. And, and stuff before possibly too but it's a sacred Christian tradition um, that is paganism uh, with a different name by any other name they, everything that, like Christianity shouldn't even exist it was invented and then cobbled together from all these pagan practices so that people would adopt it and then it's practiced in myriad ways all over the world, and it's quite crazy that none of these things resemble one another. So Christianity is kind of like a... a it's a, a cultural norm that permeates, but it's always different. And I think that most composers at a certain point just go, oh, I'm I'm not afraid of a requiem. I mean... I'll just wade in. And that's exactly what I thought. I mean, when I was uh, when I was little, I I think a lot of children have this. I had a lot of premonitions about things coming to an end and dreams and stuff. And one day I walked by my house and the book of Revelations had been torn out of one of those little Gideon's Bibles and thrown on my my front step. So I read that, and I was like, huh, that is interesting. 
and I've kind of had an interest in that that aspect of the Christian culture ever since the uh, the end of the world stuff, the revelation stuff, and and requiem. I guess you know we can't deny that so much right now is is in a collapse, and so that really that's what it was for, just to to be aware of that and to to give that attention that so much is in collapse and and um, the horror of that. It's really what my little requiem's about.
And so the piece that I have, it's just the, it's the Requiem and the Dies Irae. Mm-hmm. And that's also what I've heard recorded, but it sounds like you've been adding more to this. Um, and I'm wondering what your process is for building on that. Um, I just I just have a list of all the movements of requiems, <laughs> and I pick through it, I cherry pick it. Uh, I've done the requiem, the little introduction, the dies irae, the the world in ashes, the world in flames, and the tuba mirum, which for me is the voice of the colonizer. It's a kind of a humorous little part about the the voice of the colonizer all over the you can hear it all over the land and it's the only voice you hear you know and it's it's ugly and uh it it tuba mirum is like stinking trumpet <laughs> horrible trumpet and then uh what comes after i know there's a sanctus there's a, a lacrime lacrimosa where we make sounds like rain, like a really thick rainstorm, but then you can hear voices in it. The sanctus is me singing in a gas mask, which is probably quite disturbing. And uh, the thing about Lazarus, uh, it's something about Lazarus when, when he was poor, so that's a comment on some class stuff. Um, you know, Lazarus was poor, but then he actually was given something that no one else had. <laughs> so, like a a spiritual life, maybe it refers to. I don't even know what the what the Latin refers to in that case. But uh, so the process is really just reading through the text and picking stuff that appeals to me, and then making my own, own interpretation of what that means. Oh, quid some miser? That's really sweet. We, we come out of the tuba mirum, which ends quite raucously, and then we do a, a really pretty little um, aria, really. But it has some extended vocal techniques that really I invented because I couldn't sing properly <laughs> classically. So I, I put those in, and it's just a pretty little thing. And then it goes from there through the the rest of the movements and I haven't finished it yet I've still got one movement to go but yeah I, I cherry picked to make a lot of work and so I'm interested in what is it maybe even about your music that makes you want to get up each day and keep keep 
going to it um, because it's a it's a very long term practice for you and you're still doing it. And I think also music is like a very the sort of um, there's a lot of valorization of youth in the music profession and culture. And um, you seem to continue to have a very large output and uh, continue to be constantly transforming and and deepening your work um so that tells me that there's something about it that is that has been able to sustain you for the many many years that you've been doing it so i'm just curious what that is because it's very admirable well that's nice of you to say uh, there's two sides to it, really. I mean, everything that you do, when you create, it comes right out of you, and, and if nothing ever comes back, then that's it. It's gone. And uh, so there's always a, a real underlying level of burnout. But on the other hand, uh, for me, it's just, it's the only really fun thing to do. I mean, there's, there's other fun things to do, but creating something like a piece of music, after I kind of learned some of the skills of how to do it, it just became a really, a really fun thing to do. <laughs> I didn't have anything other than fun. It's just... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't even... I don't feel like my output is very very large. I think I've spent many years just literally trying to survive uh, a kind of level of poverty that would would just kill most people, but but ironically, most people in the world live under it. So in that, I, I feel a real companionship with everyone in that way. But spending so much time surviving is, is such a waste of creative time. And then finally being safe, uh, still having to work hard for survival, but, I mean, here I can make all the noise I want, I can write when I want, and so, in fact, I don't feel any sense of urgency, I'm more relaxed, it's like, yeah, I will, I'll do this, because I feel like doing it, and if no one ever hears it, we're lucky we can record, because people will hear it, I mean, I think the Requiem Live is going to be um, hopefully a really good ritual. <laughs>
For anyone just tuning in, my name is Rebecca Bruton, and you're listening to The Drop and The Turning, which is a new partnership between CGSW Campus and Community Radio and New Works Calgary. Today I'm speaking with Kathleen Yearwood, and we're listening to sections from her 2020 release, Requiem. One of my other questions is the fact that you do integrate so many different, like starting just with your voice, there's so many different kinds of traditions that show up in your voice. Um, But even the ways that you're putting songs together, I'm feeling like I'm always hearing your, your sound is very singular and distinctly your own. Um, but it's coming from so many different places. So there's a bit of a feeling like you're, um, as you've been moving through life and being exposed to things, you're sort of um, taking them in and absorbing them and then putting them back out again in a transformed version. Um, Did you, what are some of the ways that you've, developed your practice like I know you started out as a folk singer in Calgary and I also know that and that you have performed at the Stampede Grounds Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that you also ended up for a while in Montreal and that you were in a university setting um, studying music concrete or tape music and but then you've also been part of metal bands, and that seems to be an ongoing through line in what you do. Um, folk songs seem to be a through line. So I'm wondering how you've um, how you've come to have these such diverse pieces of musical worlds as a part of you. Well, I, I stick very closely to what I believe is my, my cultural tradition, which is, which would be uh, Celtic music. <laughs> That's kind of the foundation. But then going all the way back to a Gregorian chant and all that, um, any kind of European folk music, uh, like I'm Norwegian slash Scottish, it turns out, and it's really funny. Before I knew who you know, what my real name was when I was born and stuff. I was listening to a, a bunch of old, very old Scottish people sing stuff on a, a folkways recording. And it featured the Johnstons. And they were known for their uh, incredible voices and the fact that they never paid their bills and they constantly flipped from town to town. And they were itinerant and not very trustworthy, sometimes violent. <laughs> And then I found out, of course, that my my surname was Johnston when I was born. And I was like, oh, interesting, because I really, um, listening to those recordings, I, I learned some of the songs. The Twa Sisters and stuff, going way back, like 30 years ago. And I always wanted to stay really close to, like, I believe that people embody culture. And so I just wanted to embody the culture that I feel I have a right to embody. Um, so I didn't ever want to steal anything. I just wanted to do what 
I'm allowed to have and work within that those uh, conf- confines. And when it comes to metal music, I mean that's like that's like a response to industrial society from a working class perspective, and so I fit right in. <laughs> it just made sense, and so I don't. I just see all those things as part of my cultural heritage, I guess. Oh, heritage is such a great word right now. Anyway. talked a little bit about the land that you live on. How does the place that you live in inform the kind of music that you make? If it does. I think, I mean, I've been rural in Canada since I was 24. And I always kind of had a rural heart. Not, not a farm kind of rural, but I mean like bush kind of just comfortable in the bush and not really anywhere else. And for me, this is um, the music that happens out here. The first element is the different silences, which we spoke about. And, you know, COVID silence was, it was so beautiful. For about three weeks there, it was just a wonderful silence. How was that silence different from the usual silence out there? Um, it was, it was deeper, it was longer, and it was fuzzier. It was like a big pillow over your face smothering you with silence. Everything came to a stop. And then I learned that all the ocean animals were rejoicing because all the noise stopped in the ocean. And 
we all felt the same way. <laughs> that finally, you know, we could breathe. There's silence. It starts with that, and then, I mean, I've heard wolves, coyotes. When you wake up to some of these animal sounds and you don't know what they are, they're just pure music, and they do something to your brain. And I believe that's where humans figured music out from, was listening to animals and saying, well, we should do that too. It's really funky. And <laughs> and the uh, coyotes, and then there's these barred owls came by last summer. And one night they sat right outside my window, and they did this duet that... Um, well, it makes people shit their pants, and people have left the country because they've heard barred owls. <laughs> it's like otherworldly. And I've heard otherworldly noises from different unexpected animals out here, so I'm constantly listening to that, and uh, that definitely informs my idea of singing. That's for sure. They're my heroes. in Calgary, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And you've been back in Alberta. You left and went to Vancouver and were in BC, but you've lived in Alberta um, consistently since 1989. Is that true or earlier? Uh, yeah, I think it was 89. What has it been like for you staying in Alberta all these years? <laughs> <laughs> you don't seem to quite fit. <laughs> uh, I mean, Alberta's a nightmare. <laughs> but at least you know what you're going to get, right? Um, it was purely accidental. I was originally headed back to Europe. And uh, I ran out of money. I got as far as Montreal. Got my passport. So much hope. Ready to go. Couldn't do it. And uh, we did... Uh, end up touring Europe and uh, again by accident and 
I, it was just really poverty. I, I got too poor to keep going, keep moving. So I stayed, and, you know, I was here in a squat, just a really shitty squat. And it never really occurred to me that, I mean, I just didn't have any opportunities to go anywhere else. I was stuck here, and I came back here originally. I don't know if you know this. I came back here originally, was working with uh, just doing prisoner support, and I ended up marrying someone in uh, the Max in Edmonton just because I literally had nothing better to do, and he was called William Blake, so I felt I needed to do that. <laughs> so you married William Blake? I did, on purpose. Yeah. I was Mrs. William Blake for about a year, so that was pretty great. But uh, then I just became so impoverished that really that I would go to the prison to visit, and they would do the prisoner's would do a go-around and bring me money for gas. <laughs> I was pathetic. It was pitiful. And it stayed like that, you know? So I really had nowhere to go and no way of doing it. And, yeah, I just had no other options. So Alberta was it. <laughs> but I, I did live in a part of Alberta that I'd never been to before, so it was kind of exciting. And now I'm in the Aspen Parkland, which is a, it's a paradise on Earth. So I don't know. It's like Siberia, but on the other side, and it has a lot to offer. And the best part, when I came back to Alberta, I had no idea who the premier was. <laughs> I had no interest in any politics beyond what was going on in the prisons. And, uh, and you know, from my indigenous friends, that kind of politics... Basically, uh, I mean, the, the petty day-to-day -day didn't interest me at all. I still don't even actually know who the premier was. And uh, it hasn't made my life any better to learn about what goes on here. Because it's ridiculous on so many levels. But I don't, I don't really see... It feels like worldwide fascism's on the rise, and so, I mean, I've been resisting my whole life, not just authoritarianism and totalitarianism, but, you know, everything else. So resistance doesn't stop just because you get a nice government for a few years. Pieces of plastic 
suffered me, you even suffered me gladly. Rebecca Bruton, and this is The Drop and the Turning. The piece of music you just heard was Sweet Grass from Kathleen Yearwood's 1996 album Little Misery Birds. I'm here speaking with Kathleen Yearwood today, and we're going to wrap up the interview discussing projects on the horizon. So right now you're working on the rest of the Requiem, and you said you're doing some folk songs as well. What folk songs are you working on, and what is that project about? <laughs> uh, I put um, uh, Sir, Sir John Betjeman, his poem Slough, I put that to music. <laughs> That's a folk song, and I always envisioned Sting playing a lute in it. <laughs> then, um, of course, Hank, uh, this version of I'm So Lonesome I, I Could Cry, I never actually say the, the title line in it. It's more of a... I've always had uh, choruses that don't have any words. They're, like in Read My Diary, there's a whole chorus, but there's no words. But the words are assumed. They're like, you have to get them through telepathy. I mean, everyone knows I'm so lonesome I could cry, so what is the point of really saying it at the end of every verse, right? So I left it out. So that I'm working on. And um, then this new song that's supposed to be very emotionally manipulative. And like I wrote it and I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. I'm, I'm using my skill for evil. And then I tried to uh, sing it. About two weeks, I couldn't sing it without like just crying. Like, so I'm like, well, you know, it works. CGSW Camp.
Campus and Community Radio in partnership with New Works Calgary. My name is Rebecca Bruton. The musical segments that you've heard on today's episode were Kathleen Yearwood's Requiem in Order, Requiem Dies Irae, Tuba Mirum. There are more sections to come and in a future world where we have live concerts again, you'll come out to see the New Works Calgary live performance of the Requiem, which we have planned for 2021. What you're hearing now is Kathleen's version of Hank Williams' devastating song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. here at Mokinstis, where the bow and elbow rivers converge. Mokinstis sits within Treaty 7 territory, which encompasses the traditional territory and oral practices of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksika, Kainai, Pikani, as well as the Iaxe, Nakoda, and Sutina nations. Treaty 7 is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. I seek to liberate truth and work in solidarity toward decolonization and equal nationhood of all Indigenous peoples. 